0: Even if you are in a happy marriage or relationship, you need other people to make you feel truly content.
1: Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true, how they feed their good wolf. Our guest on this episode is Catherine Gray, and you may remember she was actually a guest once before when her book, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, was released. She now has a new book called The Unexpected Joy of Being Single, locating happily single serenity.
5: Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me.
5: It is a pleasure to have you on again. We have not had a whole lot of guests who've been on more than one time, and you might set the record for the guest who was back on the fastest. But I I haven't (laughs) measured that, but it's close. So welcome back.
0: (laughs) I feel honored. Thank you for having me.
5: So your new book is called The Unexpected Joy of Being Single, Locating Happily Single Serenity. And that's That's right. Yeah. And it's a follow on to the unexpected joy of being sober. And so we'll get into the book in a minute. But let's start like we always do with the parable. There is a grandmother who's talking with her grandson. She says in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness, bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second and he looks up at his grandmother and he says, well, grandmother, which one wins? And the grandmother says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you to answer for the second time what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the context of being single, so this will be slightly different to my answer last time, I would say that the bad wolf for me represents that um, victim mentality that I am very prone to myself around being single, you know, nobody loves me, I'm going to die alone, that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of that comes from societal messaging. So it's about learning to block those negative messages. And the goodwill for me is things like I am enough, I am complete. And also that this is the right choice for me right now, rather than feeling like singledom has been thrust upon me um so for me that those are the two wolves
5: that's a great answer and a great way to put it kind of in context of what we're going to be talking about so i'm just going to read something that you say early in the book and then we'll kind of go from there and you say if being single is so terrible why are more than half of us choosing it over coupling simple because it's not terrible being single for an extended period of time or for life can be incredibly empowering, fun, and emancipating. Being single is a heck of a lot better than panic settling, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that panic settling, that cracks me up.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's it. Absolutely in the UK, and I'm, I'm sure, well, the Western world in general, single is seen as quite a sad existence. Um, it's a, It's a waiting existence. It's you'll meet someone soon, your life will begin soon sort of thing. And I don't think that's the case. I think it's all about perception. If you see it as equally as nourishing and um, revitalizing as sort of life, then you will enjoy it all the more. So I think it's really about reframing your perception of being single and um, questioning the narratives and conditioning around being single.
5: Yeah, it must be a testament to the strangeness of my social circle that I was the one that felt weird for getting married years ago. But (laughs) (laughs) um, Really? Interesting. Yeah, well, I just, I mean, yeah, I just, most of my really good friends are not, they are single, they've been single, and they, for a long time, were not young. So yeah, that's just been my frame of reference from a lot of my friends. And I think some of the stuff that you go on to say, I think, is really useful, because you're not sort of advocating for being single.
0: No, no, it's no, it's not that at all.
5: Yeah, you're just saying, and I love this, you say, there are perks to both ways of life, single and attached. We both look over the fence at each other's grass and long to roll around in it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it true, though? Because I interviewed a psychotherapist for the book, and she said something really interesting. Um, she said, often I'll have somebody come into a session, and it will be somebody who's single later in life, And they're saying, if only I could meet the one, then I'd be happy. And then afterwards, she'll see someone who's married. And they're saying, if only I was single, I would be happy. Right. And there's just this um, feeling of the grass is greener syndrome. And we're not appreciating the things that are good about either way of life. Um, So I think it's really important to absolutely enjoy where you are at that time.
5: I agree. I mean, I have been happily single, happily coupled, unhappily single, unhappily coupled. I mean, I've had yeah. all those variations. And and it is. There's just pros and cons to both. And yeah. it's just another variation of thinking, okay, I have to be, you know, I have to be in a couple or I have to be married or whatever to be happy. It's just another variation on the, you know, if then happiness loop right if i get this then yeah. i'll be happy if i get this then i'll be happy
0: yeah and it always moves it's always a moving target i find that if if then um so it just doesn't work it's it's all about choosing to be present and make the most of where you're at
5: exactly and i think it's just another variation i've been learning about the hedonic adaptation model <laughs> Mm, Which, it, I mean, it's, we've all heard of the hedonic treadmill, right? You just keep chasing after things. Oh, well, yes. you know, the, hed- oh, I
0: thought it was called hedonistic. Oh, I've, I think I've said it wrong in the book.
5: No, it might oh, not. No. no, no, it might not be. I'm just, this is what this I'm one okay. has been called. She just calls it the, uh, the hedonic adaptation model, but, um, so it's a little bit different than, than that, but, but the essence of it is exactly what we're talking about, which is that you essentially get used to whatever you have.
0: Yeah. Right. And and then you shoot for the next thing. That's right.
5: That's right. And it's that, it's that very thought, process, which is almost impossible to completely overcome because I think it's kind of built into us to some degree. But there's a lot of Mm -hmm. things we can do to counter it. And I think to your point, that's what this is in the single versus being coupled model is that you just think that the other thing would make you happy when the reality is, I believe we can all be happy within within parameters with whatever circumstances we're in
0: yeah definitely it's like for instance at the minute i um, live alone i'm in a one bedroom apartment in beautiful brighton by the sea and I, c- I could look at this uh two ways i could be like oh i'm so lonely um i come home and there's nobody to greet me or i'm so independent and I come home and I can eat whatever I want and watch whatever I want and go to bed whatever I want and the bathroom's always free if I want a bath um which I choose the latter so it's it's all about how you see it I think and counting up your gratitudes um as you said earlier I've been in relationships where I've been really happy And I've also been in relationships where I've been deeply unhappy. And I've um, cohabited with a couple of boyfriends, one of which was a very toxic relationship. And I was very, very lonely in that relationship, even though we slept six centimeters away from each other. Um, So, And I don't think there is a lonelier place to be than constantly with somebody. But you feel unheard and uncherished and unappreciated. So um, single is definitely better than a bad relationship for sure.
5: I 100% concur as somebody who spent a lot of time in a in a bad relationship. And, you know, I'm not blaming anyone at all. It was just a bad relationship. And yeah, it is miserable to be in a relationship and be that lonely and feeling stuck and, and all of that. So I agree.
0: Yeah, And feeling paralyzed, uh, feeling scared to end the relationship. There was an extraordinary survey that I came across when I was researching the book, which asked 20,000 people what would make them the most happy. And 5,000 of them, so a quarter of them, said finding someone other than their current partner. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what? So those those 5,000 people should be single if they're that miserable in whatever relationship they're in. But they're not because I'm guessing they're scared of the alternative, they're scared of being single, they're scared of being alone. Um, and that just makes me really sad. So in a way, I wrote the book for coupled couple people, too, because if we're so scared of being single, then we don't have that uh, freedom shoot. We don't have the alternative, which means that we get stuck in toxic relationships. So I, that's why I wanted to break down the stigma around being signal and, and show people that Um, actually, we're just as happy. (laughs) So um, yeah, that was important to me.
5: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think people end up being stuck in relationships for for a variety of factors. Being afraid of being alone is is one of them. And then there are others if you've got kids, and you've got, you know, different things. But I agree with you 100%. Like staying in a relationship because you're afraid you'll be alone is a terrible, terrible idea. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. I but understand it.
5: Exactly. Yep, yeah,
0: yep. I've done it for years.
5: So I'm just going to read another quote from you because your writing just always, I think, is so good and cracks me up. And you're talking about, you're tying sort of your sobriety to this book. And you say, If you had mapped my personality islands in my 20s, there would have been a booze island, a Mordor-style aisle filled <laughs> with lost handbags, nightclubs like B at One, <laughs> slavering demons and bottomless abysses. But the island that would have been just as big and just as malevolent would have been Man Island. It was constantly illuminated, shaking and beset with thunderstorms like a possessed amusement park.
3: <laughs> First.
5: That whole phrase is so good. A possessed amusement park. That's a great phrase for uh, some of my internal conditions at points. <laughs>
0: thank you well it is a roller coaster being in a relationship isn't it um and i think the the two coexist so often um drinking and um love addiction because well they just do which is why some people call recovering from love addiction the second sobriety right um yeah so i think there's absolutely a trend for those two things to go hand in hand the dating app and the glass of wine
5: yeah i would agree which makes me have to pull out one other phrase from later in the book when you talk about the dating app because it's you quoted somebody who wrote this this is from writer mark simpson who calls singles who spend hours a day trawling dating apps the unpaid secretaries of desire (laughs) which is just so brilliant such a great Great phrase. But but back to what we were talking about. I agree. I think that love addiction very often can be the second sobriety. I know it was in a lot of ways for me. I went through that. You know, I had to go through some of that. And it sounds like you and I are sort of similar in our love addiction. And I feel I feel remarkably recovered like I do from alcohol.
0: Yeah, I I know what you mean.
5: You know, I feel like that's been a long time coming. (laughs) yeah and (laughs) uh me too and so let's talk about it you refer to yourself as a batshit crazy love addict so talk to me about what does being a love addict mean to you
0: okay well um i did a lot of research into this and love addiction is a real thing so in the uk we have the foremost rehab clinic would probably be considered to be the priory rehab clinic and i'm doing this by memory but they defined love addiction as clinging to um idealized versions of relationships staying in toxic relationships and just in general allowing your behavior to become warped because you're obsessed with preserving that relationship the the most important thing to you is making sure that relationship does not end even if it's a toxic one Um, so In me, this manifested in all sorts of behavior that was actually detrimental to my relationships. I would do things like snoop on messages to make sure that they weren't about to leave me um, or find out if there was any other people in the picture um, to try and preserve the relationship. But of course, snooping on people's messages is absolutely invasion of privacy. And so that created loads of problems Um, I was very needy. I needed a lot of attention. That's another classic sign. Um, And also because I was addicted to attention from um, the opposite sex, um, the gender that I'm attracted to, I also cheated. So I would um, go out. But this was related to my drinking as well. It was always pretty much when I was blackout drunk. So I'd go out and caught attention from other men and um, kiss other men. So it was it was just something that I was fixated on, um, this romantic attention, and I would do anything to get it.
5: Right. You say that when I wasn't with someone, I felt flat and dark, like a pitch black room that waits for someone to come along, flick on the light and animate it once more. And that describes me so much as, you know, earlier for me was like. If I wasn't in a relationship, that was the primary thing I was after. That's what I thought made me whole. Yeah. And then I got into some of what we'll talk about here in a second, which is why we fancy—that's an English term for us American listeners—we might say like in different <laughs> people more.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: But for me, it was like I was I was looking for that that relationship or that thing to fill up some hole in me, so I would get it. And when it didn't fill up the hole, because it can't. Yeah. I would suddenly conclude that the partner was the problem. Yeah. And then it would be like, okay, now I need the next thing, which is the same thing as like thinking if I get this promotion at work, then I'll be happy. Once I get it, I don't find myself happy. I start thinking I need the next. It's the same mental process, which is I'm trying to fill some hole with something from the outside. And when I get it and it doesn't work, I assume the problem is what I got, not the entire underlying thought process and emotional structure
0: yeah yeah it's it's the hallmark of addiction isn't it it's you never have enough yeah enough is this ever moving um neon sign that you're trying to get to and you can never reach it so um and you're right it's because you feel this hole inside of you and you try and fill it with glasses of wine or um whatever your drug of choice is or a person and that just doesn't work so Um, The only person who can make you feel whole is yourself.
5: Right. And you actually talk about this a little bit later on. Um, I used to think like, you know, everything was like an inside job. It all came from inside of me. And one of the things the show's taught me over and over is that, you know, these external connections are important. But what you talk Mm -hmm. about later in the book is how some psychologists say, you know, you need bonding with three, four, five people, not one
0: yeah. In yeah. order so,
5: to to have a solid social connection, which is important to our well-being.
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, that was from a, a famous Oxford anthropologist. I, I think he's called Robin Dunbar, um, And he said that we need five people, five close people in order to be happy, not just one. So um, there's also this famous quote from a psychotherapist called Esther Perel, who says something like, we go to one person and we expect them to give us everything. Give me security, give me novelty, give me, you know, all of these contradictory things. And once that would have taken a whole family or a whole village, we would have looked to the entire community. And now we're looking for this one person, this soulmate to provide it all. And that just doesn't work. Nobody can do that. Um, so I think it's, it's very important to remember, even if you are in a happy marriage or relationship, that you need the other people as well to, um, to make you feel truly content. So not to put all your eggs in one basket, to coin a British phrase.
5: Yeah, I I think so too. I mean, certainly I am in a crazy happy relationship now and have been for, for years at this point, which I honestly did not at a certain point in my life think was possible at all. I thought like, I am broken, won't work.
0: Yeah, I relate to that.
5: For me, it was sort of startling to me what happened when the right person came along. But that was also after decades of (laughs) personal growth and learning and all that. Um, but my point of all that was even being in that, my other friendships are still so important to me. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned somewhere in the book, I don't have it in my notes here, but this made it come up, which is one of the things that can be problematic about being coupled is that we, we give up everything else.
0: Yeah. So a a, a marriage or a relationship pushes mm-hmm. out on average two close friends, which yeah. I can completely understand because... When you become coupled, you become more insular. Another really interesting thing is that people that live alone have been shown to be more sociable and less lonely. And I think the reason for that is that you make more of an effort to get out there and socialize. Whereas when I've lived with boyfriends in the past, it's just so easy to come home and lie in front of the TV and not really talk. Right. (laughs) Whereas now I make sure my social calendar is quite. Um, not too full because I'm an introvert, but full enough with in exciting things to do. Um, whereas before, I would just come home and stick on Breaking Bad. So it's I think that's true. We we can um, become more insular in a couple and neglect our friendships, and also our time's taken up by the our partners' friends and family as well. So um, who we aren't necessarily they're not our chosen ones. So I think it's important to preserve that autonomy and make sure that our loved ones are still getting the attention and FaceTime.
5: It's possible Chris is going to insert an editor's note here that says watching Breaking Bad is never a bad idea. So (laughs) it's just possible he's going to do that. So and I kind of have to agree. It is a pretty brilliant show.
4: Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Interestingly, back to the hedonic adaptation model that I have been reading about, there was a scientific study about it in the context of relationships, saying that this happens in relationships, and one way to avoid it is to do exactly what you're suggesting, which is not come home and watch Breaking Bad every day. It's to introduce novelty into the relationship, do different things together, you know, that keep you from being coming so adapted to your partner and bored and falling into that same routine.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice. Absolutely.
5: So let's move into why we fancy indifferent people more. I'm going to just give you my relationship history up until, you know, five years ago in a nutshell meet someone, fall head over heels with them, get into the relationship. They start to really like me. I become bored. I become distant. I become, I want out. I want out. But of course, I don't do it. And then they finally (laughs) are like, this is ridiculous. And they leave. And I have a complete and utter breakdown. Yeah, Because they're the most important thing in the entire world to me. (laughs) And I must have them back. And so, and the few of my relationships that that never happened in... Are the ones where i never fully felt like they really wanted me
0: yeah so you hadn't won them yeah so they remained slightly distant well this is this is just something that replays over and over in millions of different relationships um and one of the reasons is it's um something called reward uncertainty whereby when we know that we're going to get a reward Um, we get we become less interested in the reward so if you text somebody and you're not entirely sure they're going to text back when they do text back it gives us more of a hit of dopamine so our brain lights up um like a Christmas tree. Um, Whereas when we know they're going to text back, you're slightly bored when you receive the reply, which is just our brain making us fancy the wrong people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So the people that are consistent and reliable and always reply are the people that we fancy the least. And um, so it's just annoying. But once you're aware of it, then you can begin to rectify it like anything. The awareness is the key to changing that behavior.
5: Yeah, that's one of the things that now I'm like, wow, that mechanism actually seems not to be completely gone, but it it is not the driving force for me at all anymore. It's like I somehow have gotten to the point where knowing that somebody cares about me and loves me and is always there has become something I'm like, I love it.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I think that's something that clicks into place once you like yourself and respect yourself more so before um when i didn't like myself or respect myself when somebody was really really into me i thought there was something wrong with them right i really did so and and so i would reject them so whereas the people that weren't sure about me i i was more interested in because i thought um they probably got the right idea because i don't really like myself either So therefore, I'm going to try and win them over. And I was completely unaware of this at the time, but that's what was going on. So, yeah, it's just so interesting once you dismantle it and take it apart.
5: Yeah, I agree. I thought this was perfect because this describes me pretty darn well. You say that. As a result, when a partner is a super keen 80 to 100% into me, even if I liked him at first, I will find things wrong with them in order to unhook myself. Yeah. Whereas when a man is 60 to 79% keen, that's when I'm hooked. That's when I become the emoji with heart shaped eyes. Anything less than 60, and my dignity kicks in.
0: Yeah, this is so true.
5: So, so, so perfect. And, you know, this reward uncertainty is not just related to relationships, right? It's, it's across the board when we don't know that we'll always get the reward. We're much more likely to keep seeking it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it it is across the board and it's also related to, um, attachment styles, which, um, I'm sure you want to talk about as well. So let's um, go there. Yeah, let's do it. I'm not an expert in this, but I've read a lot about it. Um, There's an amazing book called Attached, which is by a neuroscientist called Amir Levine and um, a psychologist called Rachel something. I'm so sorry, I can't remember her last name, but it's incredible. And it it was one of those books that I read and it just made everything make sense. So the theory goes, and it's based on a wealth of research, that we have three different attachment styles um, and it's, Created in early childhood, which attachment style you are. Um, and there's anxious attached, secure attached, and avoidant attached. Now, I'm an anxious attacher, which explains all the neediness, and um, I basically expect rejection rather than am surprised by it. Um, and anxious attachers tend to be overwhelmingly attracted to avoidant attachers who will avoid and swerve close relationships. So it's so interesting. Secure attached people tend to end up in relationships with other secure attached people. And so the rest of us are left in this sort of merry dance (laughs) of avoidant and anxious. It's just it's just a nightmare. Um, But you can change your attachment style. So um, I, I was really interested. So I did. It from that there's loads of quizzes in the book, and I did it from the point of view of me when I was drinking and at my most chronic love addiction stage, um, which was five and a bit years ago, and I did it from the point of view of me now, and I'm moving much more towards secure attachment. Um, just because I've been doing so much work on myself. So it, that was a revelation for me. I don't know about you.
5: Well, I haven't read the book, but I have heard of uh, attachment styles. I have a question for you, though, about that. So you mentioned that your anxious attachment, and mm-hmm. but then that also turns into avoidant for you. When you're turning into avoiding a relationship or pushing it away, is that not your attachment style? It's just a, it's a behavioral mechanism that Result as part of your attachment style or from your attachment style
0: i think it's uh part of the anxious attachment style whereby if uh, you seek avoidant people so i think i see what you're saying that um i switch from anxious to avoidant maybe that is the case maybe i'm a double winner <laughs> maybe i'm both anxious and avoidant um i haven't really explored that but it's entirely possible um but yeah, so when people get too close, you you swerve away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it just means that you never end up in a content, fulfilled relationship. So learning about that was really important for me to reframe that and understand why I've behaved in certain ways in the past and how to change my behaviour in future.
5: That book, I've seen it come across a couple of recommendations now, and I recently. Suggested it to a coaching client, and she is absolutely loving it. So, thank you for the suggestion. I'm already helping others.
0: It's a great book. I recommend everyone read it.
4: Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Let's talk about love addiction. We've talked about what it is, how it might manifest. And so one of the things you say is, okay, I'm a love addict. Great. Great. But in a way, it's good news because it already means you have the tools in your arsenal to beat this. So let's talk about what are some of the tools that you learned from sobriety, from getting sober from alcohol, that you've now been able to use with love addiction?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, I decided when I first got sober, I completely ignored the advice to take a year off dating and got into quite a serious relationship for six months. And then when that ended, I was really quite crushed, well, very crushed. Um, But it was more (laughs) to do with my fear of being single and fear of being um, ending up alone or left on a shelf or whatever you want to call it. Um, And so I decided to take an entire year off. So for me... That abstinence was really important Um, and it helped me completely reframe the way I see my life. And it also helped me see that I can get happiness from all sorts of different sources and love from all sorts of different sources. Romantic love is not the most powerful form of love. familial love and platonic love are just as powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really important that year completely off dating. I didn't so much as hold a man's hand. Um, and that reset everything for me. and But then I reintroduced it, which I haven't done with alcohol, because God, no. <laughs> well, I <laughs> can tell you.
5: Yeah, I, I could tell you. So I did the same thing. I took, I think, nine months off dating at one point, um, which yeah. was great for me. I also, at one point in my life, reintroduced alcohol, and it did not go well. So... <laughs>
0: we're not built for moderation i
5: don't i don't think even with all my development and growth that that's ever going to be a good idea i hope (laughs) i remember that
0: (laughs) no and i have no desire to either it's just it repulses me now actually alcohol um but that i am over five years so i think that comes later
5: the thing that you Um, said a little while ago that struck me was about how like once you got sober you know the way you behave change so much. And it's just I always think it's remarkable how easy it how much easier it is to be faithful when you're sober.
0: Oh, my gosh, it really is. I mean, I was never faithful before. And it was never premeditated. It was always when I was off my face um which is just is a british term meaning very drunk yes um so it it was never something that i planned to do and i was i the geek the guilt would eat away at me right it crucified me and i didn't understand why i couldn't get it why i couldn't stay faithful why i couldn't stop myself from kissing other blokes (laughs) um and, and then it just, it was so simple. Just take away the alcohol. And, uh, uh, you know, it would never even occur to me to be unfaithful now. It just, it will never happen. I can 100% say I will never be unfaithful now that I don't drink. Um, and I think so many people go through that torment. It's it's just such a shame that they don't realize it's a it's a side effect of the alcohol, not their character.
5: Right. Yes, yes. Alcohol will cause
0: infidelity.
5: And, well, yeah, and will cause any number of terrible decisions.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Taking clothes off yeah. in public.
5: Yeah, yeah. The list goes on and on. I, we don't need to recount them all. But.
0: Okay. Let's not go there. All
5: right. So let's talk about the tools.
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I think it was very much a case of, for me, I really really looked at the social conditioning around alcohol. And I did the same around being single, because we are told in a million different ways that being single is sad. In fact, I saw an advert the other day on the tube, and it stopped me in my tracks. I literally stopped and stood there and people there was like a sea of people moving around me because i couldn't believe it it, it was um a, an advert for a dating app and i won't mention which one but it said single is your time to shine and it showed these happy people and the reason it stopped me in my tracks is because i'd never seen an advert that was pro single before right um and you know you'll turn on the radio i had an advert for a credit card the other day which i, I have no idea why it said this but it said we know that being single is no fun. So get our credit card. I, I don't know what, what that selling <laughs> strategy is. But it's everywhere it's in rom-coms. Um, and once you start looking out for it, it's from our relatives as well. You know, if you say you're single, they'll say, there, there, you'll meet someone soon. You know, you'll be cured soon. Someone yep. will come along and release you from this terrible fate. Um, and it's, it's, it's the same as the drinking thing. We're told that, alcohol provides fun and sobriety is boring and we're told that relationships provide contentment and being single is uh, lonely and awful so once you're aware of that you can detach from it so that was a really important tool for me
5: and i think so much of you know that cultural piece is is there and it is transforming a little bit i was started watching downton abbey recently i had never watched it (laughs) You know, at least in the early part of the show, like getting those daughters married is like a matter of life yes. or death, right? Like how serious it is. And so, if you look back and you think about what being a single woman has historically meant, it's not been a great thing. Those days are so very, very different now, but we're not fully culturally caught up.
0: No, no, and it literally was a matter of life or death back in back in those days because. If um, your parents hadn't managed to marry you off, then when they were gone, if there there was no inheritance, then how are you going to survive? So, you know, when you look at the the, it was the 70s in Britain when women were able to open their own bank accounts and buy a house.
5: Crazy, you
0: know, so they really were very reliant on men before, whether it was. Um, a father or a husband. Yeah. And um, we still don't have wage equality in the UK, certainly. So we're here can. Well, yeah, it's 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 such a problem, but we can provide for ourselves and we can have careers and we can put a roof over our heads and um, women can have a baby now without being socially ostracized if they're not married. So there's been so much progress. So I think a lot of the single movement is simply because of feminism or, in other words, equality. So I think that's it's important to recognize that. That's why this generation is more single than any generation before.
5: Because we can be.
0: Yeah, exactly. Definitely.
5: I interrupted you there. You mentioned understanding the cultural programming was one of your tools for dealing with it.
0: Yeah. Um, And also just knowing that a thought can't. So I was pretty addicted to dating apps when I um, quit drinking and then ended this relationship with this six month guy. Um, so before I took the year off I just was constantly stabbing at dating apps um, trying to fill the vacancy that um, you know this boyfriend going missing had created almost as if I was looking for a new job that's how urgent I felt about it Um, and it's it's the same you you know I know now that a thought cannot make me drink even though I don't have thoughts about drinking anymore but I did for many many years and you know that a thought of, oh, you could have a drink now. What about a drink? That a drink would be nice. That doesn't have to make you drink. um, And those thoughts go away over time. So it's the same with using a dating app or texting an ex. A thought doesn't have to lead to an action. So that was really important. Yeah,
5: I love that. That's such a great phrase. A thought doesn't have to lead to an action.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, and just simple things that I'd learned from recovery like halt, which is hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Um, sometimes I will feel overwhelmed by single sorrow. I remember there was this one time this summer where I was walking because I'm not fixed, by the way, I still have days where I'm consumed by single sorrow. And I think it's important to um, say that so that people know that it's completely normal um where I was walking up this hill in Barcelona and I was crying behind my sunglasses because I'm not married and everyone else around seemed to be married <laughs> um and then I had a snack and I was fine <laughs> so yeah yeah sometimes something that feels like an emotional tragedy is just that you're hungry or you need a nap or you need to phone somebody you know, it, um, just like Halt in recovery, which is such, it was the bedrock of my early recovery.
5: Yeah.
0: Um, so, yeah.
5: Which for listeners is don't let yourself get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Yeah. Which is, so I don't know if they have these commercials in the UK, but there were some commercials they were running here for Snickers candy bars in the US. And it's this funny commercial where, I, I'm trying to think of exactly what it is, like a full-grown man, like a football player gets hungry and he just turns into this, like, almost weeping, high-strung, totally Jackie emotional, Collins. over-the-top di- yes, diva. We have yeah,
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> we have that up
5: And then... Then you eat the Snickers bar and boom, it all goes away. And I mean, that is so I mean, I agree. I still fall back on that, you know, hungry, angry, lonely and tired. And I have always thought that's a strange combination of four words, because two of those you just eat mm-hmm. or sleep. Um The other two take a little bit more work with like, all right, I'm angry. Okay, that's going to, you know, it's not the the solution isn't as biological or lonely. The solution isn't as biological, although it's all wise. I've just kind of thought that that's a strange grouping of those categories. You say, yeah, you say realizing that an emotional Greek tragedy often has a forehead slappingly simple solution pierces its power.
0: Yeah, it really does. Um, and one of my methods, so something that I used because I, I found that when I was unhappily single, which was always in my uh, 20s and early 30s, I would constantly comb over past relationships. Um, this is another really key thing. Um, I think even if you are on good terms with an ex, if you keep looking at their profile on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, you need to block them. Because you can't move past that yes. until you stop looking at that. And it's a very modern uh, problem. I mean, we did not have this in the 90s. You, did not, you were not able to see your ex with his new girlfriend on holiday and, uh, or a video of them playing with their toddler. You know,
5: yeah, uh, these
0: things are threatening our mental health. So even though it feels like you're sort of losing control of them, if you block them and delete them um, and, you know, it's like keeping a piece of them and still being friends with them on Facebook. You, it's absolutely a gift to your mental health to delete them and you're allowing yourself to move on. Um, and that is a healthy thing. So that was something that I really realised.
5: Yeah, I agree. I mean, luckily, I think I have not spent a ton of time in the truly single world in the Facebook age. Yeah. Only a little bit, but I recognize how bad that could really be. Well, we are somehow here at the end of our time. What? No. Oh
0: my I god. I know. That's gone so
5: well, fast. The, here's here's the good and bad news. The 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 bad news is we're at the end of our time here. The good news is that you and I are going to continue talking in our post show conversation, yes. which listeners, you can get access to by going to oneyoufeed.net/slash support. And I think some of what you and I are going to talk about is exercise, gratitude, turning your brain from a worry-sinking instrument into a bounty-hunting machine. We'll explain <laughs> what that means, and maybe talk about how learning and growth is not linear. So, again, Listeners, you can find us in the post-show conversation, net slash support. And Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure as always.
0: Thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone listening.
5: Okay. Bye.
0: Bye.
1: If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeednet slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.